This is the second Sunday after Epiphany, and on this Sunday we complete the cycle of the gospel readings for the Epiphany season, just as we enter some Sundays in ordinary time, a little mini green season, and this is tinctured by uh, the Epiphany theme, the great Epiphany theme of the ways and the means by which we make manifest the presence of Christ to the world, the presence of Jesus Christ and how we do it. In my sermon this morning, I want to preach on 1 Corinthians, which is a uh, passage about the varieties of gifts, and to say something to you about a particular approach to Christianity, which was very present in the Corinthian church. And then to say a word about the, the last of the three Gospels, uh, the wedding scene at Cana. Father Thomas Keating says that on Epiphany, for Western Christians, we celebrate the manifestation of the babe's divine nature to the Magi and express this movement of incorporation into Christ and of transformation of consciousness. And last Sunday at the baptism of Christ, we read Luke's version of the manifestation of Jesus' divine nature to the Jews by the voice from heaven after his baptism in the Jordan, and it signifies our proximate call to divine union. The human family and each of us is purified by the waters of baptism and prepared for spiritual marriage with the Son of God. I'll save his comment on the wedding scene at Cana when we get to it. But that last statement by Father Keating means this, and you've heard preachers, I think, say this before. What Jesus Christ is by nature, we become through adoption and grace at our baptism. So we are invited to share in that divine life, and as we follow him, we become in some way uh, more in touch with our true self. The Eastern Orthodox Church refers to this process in, in human beings as deification or theosis. And what that means is that as we live a life of intention and desire to know God's will and purpose for us, we become less unlike God. And that is one of the major goals of the Christian faith and life. So let's talk a little bit about 1 Corinthians. Uh, I say over and over again, rather glibly, that the Corinthian church was the church in the New Testament that was on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement. And the fact is that they were. It was an extremely diverse congregation, which has its benefits in Christian life in every age, but also it had a certain amount of conflict and dissent. And the particular group that is being addressed obliquely by Paul in this section of 1 Corinthians uh, were a group of people that we now call Gnostic Christians. And it affords me to say a word to you about Gnosticism and Gnostic Christians. Uh, this is Gnosticism is very popular these days. There have been a, an enormous number of books in the last 25 or more years written on Gnosticism, not scholarly books about the nature of Gnosticism in the thought world of Jesus' day only, but books that are for popular consumption and popular reading. 
And many people have been led to believe that Gnosticism is really the true Christianity. And it is a, a form of Christianity that got sort of uh, marginalized by Orthodox Christianity because they prevailed in the clash of the history of ideas. They didn't win. So now they're on the outs. We first knew about this type of Gnosticism in depth after uh, it was discovered in a, in a place in Egypt called Nag Hammadi, a whole library of these Gnostic Christian books in the late 1940s. And this discovery was made within two or three years of the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. So once we found all of this, we thought, oh, gee, here's a whole lot of these Gnostic writings and what are we going to do with them and so forth. So as a footnote to this, about three or four years ago, I was in Vancouver and I went to the Regent College bookstore. Um, it, Regent College is a full-tilt boogie evangelical seminary. Uh, it is not sponsored by the Anglican Communion, but they have a terrific bookstore if you know what to look for. So I was in there uh, shopping for books, as I usually do, and I came to the cash register with the books I wanted to buy, and uh, the, the clerk said, um, you know, uh, you've bought more than $50 worth of books, so there, you, there's a big stack of books down here in the front of the cash register, and you can just pick one that you'd like. So I picked this book up which was an obscure book by a professor of New Testament at the University of Chicago. His name was Robert M. Grant. He was also an Episcopal priest, and he was a drop-dead expert on uh, the, the period of the Roman Empire and the, the historical Jesus and so on. And this was an obscure book about some figure in the Roman Empire that had some relationship to all of this. But the interesting thing that I remember was that there was a, a paragraph or two in there uh, by uh, Dr. Grant who said, essentially, uh, a lot of people have been saying, you know, we discovered all these writings at Nag Hammadi and there aren't very many of them. And uh, probably there was some systematic destruction of these writings because uh, the Christians that prevailed were opposed to them and it was not a, a, a pretty picture. And he said... The fact of the matter is the reason there are so few of them is nobody was reading them, so nobody was copying them. So sometimes the most uh, obvious answer can be uh, hard for some people to get to, particularly if they uh, have a particular point of view they wish to advance. In any case, the Gnostic Christians in, uh, in Corinth believed that the true Christianity is the internal enlightenment that you receive by understanding the secret teaching of Jesus. Gnosis means knowledge in Greek. So you need to understand this knowledge and you will, you will achieve some species of interior enlightenment that will allow you now to uh, somehow uh, flourish as a spiritual entity and so forth. The reason it was resisted by other forms of Christianity was that's not what Jesus taught and that's not what Jesus did. Jesus believed that we were to be the agents of the transformation of the world and that we were to bring the values of the kingdom of God here 
And so each Christian person becomes an instrument of the purposes of God as they begin to understand more clearly and fully the nature of that teaching, the teaching of Jesus about how to do this. And those are the middle bits of the Gospels that I've talked about over the last several weeks that don't just deal with his birth and with his death, but with his teaching and with his earthly ministry. And so not only did these Gnostics believe there was this interior way of operating and that it was the real Christianity and the most important thing, uh, they believed that having those, that, this knowledge and these skills and abilities put them in a more superior spiritual position than those who did not. So Paul was, was moved to, to say to the Corinthian congregation, there are varieties of gifts but the same spirit. And our focus should not be on this hierarchy, a hierarchy of gifts, but that all gifts are necessary for building up the body of Christ, for the the necessity to extend in our lives as we reach out in love and concern for other people. And so we shouldn't focus on this. We should think of a democratic way of understanding the gifts that we receive from God that come from the Spirit of God. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. You know, this is not for the purpose only or even most importantly uh, for self-enlightenment. This is very popular as you can imagine these days because the triumph of the autonomous self is the highest good in our culture. So Paul says to them, you need now to begin to think about how you use these gifts and begin to celebrate with one another that uh, you have them. You know, maybe some of you think, I've thought about what I could do for God or I want to do this and I, I would like to offer something and I don't know what it would be and I don't even think I may possess any of the spiritual, intellectual, emotional qualities uh, that would make a contribution or a difference. And this text is about the fact that it, they do, in big and small ways, the ordinary and the commonplace activities of how we relate to one another in our living. And so what this is about and why we read it now is that it has everything to do with how we make manifest the presence of Christ to the world. In the story of the wedding scene at Cana, we have, of course, the famous line, I've always liked, woman, what have you to do with me? Jesus is a little piqued with his mother, it appears, and as I mentioned last week or the week before, one of the most famous preachers in the early period of Christianity, St. John Chrysostom, preached on this text in Constantinople in about 428, and said at that moment, our Lord released his mother from a tyrannous affection. So the story is, they're out of wine. So people must have been celebrating in a big way. And so uh, Jesus didn't want to be asked to do anything or to in some way uh, show, show his hand too early. But as the story goes, after his mother spoke to him, he told the servants to fill these water jars and he 
transforms the water into wine. And not only does he do that, the waiters say most people drink the good wine first and save the worst wine for last, and you've done it the other way around in this celebration. So what this is about is not the miracle of the transformation of water into wine. It's about God's abundance. It was more wine than anybody needed in this celebration because it seems like they were all well on their way. (laughs) And so it's about, though, the fact that there's enough. You know, with God, there's enough. Paul, in, second, in 1 Corinthians, a little later after this passage, says, we need to be concerned about how we can match our abundance with other people's need. So when you think about offering your gift, that means whatever it is that you possess, some degree of abundance in talent, skill, ability, practical wisdom, that you find the ways and the means to match that with other people's needs. And here, this is a story about God's abundance moving forward. Saint Jerome, one of the famous biblical scholars of the early Christian period, uh, was asked by somebody uh, in his life, um, did all of the people at the weddings at Cana, did they drink up all that wine that he'd made? And St. Jerome said, no, we're still drinking it. And what he meant by that was, of course, it is a very deep and powerful symbol of the Eucharist that we participate in uh, all the time, the spiritual food and drink. One time in a class at Neshota House, uh, in, litur- in the liturgy class that Dr. Lewis Weil taught, somebody raised their hand and said, why do you have to have wine at the Eucharist? And Lewis looked at this person absolutely deadpan and said, because wine has the spirit in it. <laughs> and he wasn't kidding. So if anybody asks you that, you can tell them you have the answer now. Father Keating says that the manifestation of Jesus' divine nature to the apostles through the transformation of water into wine at the marriage feast of Cana signifies the consummation of the spiritual marriage of Christ with human nature and with each of us in particular. And this theme, in one sense, is not uniquely Christian because the lesson we heard from Isaiah today has everything to do with this spiritual marriage of the people of God. And it was a theme that permeated all of the conversation, all of the yearning, all of the thinking about return from exile. Return from the alienation of yourself from God, the alienation of yourself from your ability to understand how important you are in God's plan for the cosmos, and how this now all comes together in the words and works of Jesus Christ. Keating says elsewhere in his book, The Mystery of Christ, that Jesus did not merely assume a human body and soul. 
He assumed the actual human condition in its entirety, including the instinctual needs of human nature and the cultural conditioning of his time. By taking the human condition upon himself, Jesus introduced into the entire human family the principle of transcendence, giving the evolutionary process a decisive thrust toward God consciousness. In the 11th century AD in England, the Archbishop of Canterbury, St. Anselm, developed a theological proof for the existence of God. It was called the ontological proof for the existence of God. And he said in that writing that the reason God must exist is that human beings can think of God, can think about God. Uh, there are some holes in this over time, and even some of his contemporaries uh, spoke about those. But I've always been very fond of this because it's always remarkable to me uh, how that's a possibility that each human person can think of God, whether they believe in God or not, that they are actually thinking about it in some way. And one of the things I would say, which maybe is a poor analogy, is here we are walking around with one of these. And I remember as a kid watching Star Trek. And people were communicating with each other with devices not dissimilar to this. And there are cell phones, you know, that have the flip tops. They look just like the whatever the thing was called that they used uh, in Star Trek, you know. And no doubt... That may have had something to do with how people conceive their design and what it is that they do with it and so forth, you know. The one I like is on construction site, push to talk, right? You don't have to make that sound when you do it, but it goes, it makes a sound and bang, you're right with the foreman, you know. You don't have to phone them. You go push to talk and you talk. So look forward to being beamed up someday maybe. Right, although I don't want, I'm worried and nervous about the scrambling of the atoms. That's just in the unscramb that could be a real problematic situation if you get stuck in some way. But uh, quantum mechanics no doubt has an answer to how that works. They're already transmitting particles around the world. So uh, how we do that in the future, one never knows. But think of those things and the, and the possibility. I don't know whether this is called visualization or whatever it is, but it sure has great power uh, in the human consciousness. And you and I believe that the human consciousness particip participates in the divine consciousness. And epiphany is about the celebration of those uh, realities in the spiritual, emotional, and mental lives of faithful people. So we're urged when we read the story of the wedding scene at Cana, in Cana to see now the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and to focus ourselves on the middle bits. And we're going to get talking about the middle bits in the next few Sundays in this green season. What then must we do? And what we do know is that we all are necessary for its accomplishment. Amen.